This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. More questions than answers surround the possibility of a government debt default, but it wouldn't be good for federal employees or retirees. For the duration, you might need to live on whatever rainy day cash you've got saved up. I discussed this earlier with certified financial planner Art Stein. He outlined some of the unknowns. One, we have to realize, and I did not realize, that a default is different from a government shutdown. Oh, yes, indeed. And we've actually, as I learned, never had a default. We've had shutdowns. A default is actually just all the payments, any money coming out of the government stops. So... For federal employees and retirees, it means that salaries wouldn't be paid, annuities would not be paid, Social Security would presumably not be paid, Medicare, Medicaid, everything could potentially stop. Now, one of the things we don't know is, are they actually going to stop all of that? And is the assumption that they would make up the payments afterwards good? But a default could happen in a lot of different ways. So to begin with, we don't know when a default might occur. You know, we keep hearing different dates. June 1st was the most recent date that I heard that seemed to be pretty much, I wouldn't say set in stone, but it seemed pretty definitive. But now I'm hearing that, well, maybe this, that, and the other might happen. A key thing that we don't know is if we had a default, would it last one or two days or one or two months? One or two days would be bad. I mean, it would raise interest rates maybe for a very prolonged period of time, and it would have various other reputational problems and things like that. An extended default would be disastrous. You know, in my lifetime and probably yours, Tom, the worst two financial crises were the 2007, 8, and 9 crash right. <clears throat> right. and COVID. And it's possible that a default would be worse than all of those. Sure. Because one, it puts the United States in the position of such a self-inflicted wound that, you know, I think people, many people would no longer depend upon us. They wouldn't want to use the dollar and various other things. As I said, we don't know if there was a default, whether the money that wasn't paid would be paid once the default ended. And we don't know how damaging it would be to the U.S. and world economies. So there are a lot of unknowns. But what we do know is this. A true default would mean that federal employees and retirees would not be getting any income from the government, including Social Security, not just salaries and annuities. So it means that everybody needs to look at their emergency funds because they might have to live on that for an extended period of time. And emergency funds, of course, include money you have in the bank. If someone has a home equity line of credit, that could be used. Credit card debt, which I hate, but it would make sense to, you know, run up balances on your credit cards while this was going on, presuming that when it ended, the money would be paid back and you could pay off those loans. Of course, the interest cost would not go away. And maybe people need to have cash. I mean, I don't know. Nobody knows. It's just such an unknown. We are speaking with certified financial planner Art Stein. To get back to the original point, you know, is it 
different, and it is different from a government shutdown. The irony here is that the Treasury would stop paying bondholders for you know T-bills that come due, but yet Congress has appropriated all of the dollars necessary for the fiscal 2023. We're in the middle. That was late getting it done, but those monies are appropriated. So they could, in theory, be available. What's lacking is any kind of guidance as to what the order of payouts would be, what is subordinated to what. And it could be that federal salaries would be at the top of the list, but we just don't know yet. So that uncertainty from the White House, there's no guidance from OMB or anybody else. I'm guessing that federal salaries would not be at the top of the list. I just think that top of the list is going to be And and what we're speaking about here is instead of cutting off all the payments, maybe they would still make some payments and some kind of priority, you know, list of how to make payments. And there's a bill that I guess has passed the House that says, well, priority should be interest on the debt so we don't default on our bonds. And then they start going down the list. But I've also heard and, you know, here this is just speculation that People aren't sure that they have the computer capacity to differentiate on these different types of payments. So it's just this huge unknown. And and I don't really, uh, I can't speculate on that, or at least I don't like to. All I can say is, you know, it's always important to have an emergency fund and to have some way of, you know, getting uh, to spend money if you need money temporarily, like a home equity line of credit. And uh, now might be the time when uh, people that have that look good. I, I remember when we've had salaries were not paid. It was shocking how many people just could not go more than about a week. Yes. And even though the Congress in the shutdown situations has voted to guarantee that the people would get back pay, that federal employees would get their back pay. Nevertheless, that's fine when it comes through, but you never know when it will come through. And as you say, people may only have a week's worth of savings. And and also, you know, we have, I'm sure there are government contractors who listen to your show. And um, of course, their payments would stop during a default. And I don't know what the situation would be in terms of paying them back. All right. And so what other advice do you have then? I mean, once you max out the credit cards and use up your cash, then what? I mean, that that's the end of the rope. Yeah. Or have- you start selling off TSP accounts. Yeah. Well, that's another potential source of income, but it would be really too bad if people had to do that because they're going to be selling those funds probably after the both the stock and bond markets have crashed. And, you know, you, you really don't like to sell during that type of situation. Of course, if you take money out before age 59 and a half, you have penalties. I don't know how quickly people could get that money out. The G fund is affected in various ways that you may, I don't think interest is going to be paid on G fund balances. And I'm not sure how available those balances would be to take out during a default. It's just this huge catastrophe that we don't know how it would unfold. And it it just seems amazing that we have to talk about something that is so totally stupid to let happen to your country. But politicians are acting in a way that it may happen. Certified financial planner Art Stein will post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Well, that's it for this week's Fed Life. Until next week, don't forget, federal service is honorable service. I'm Tom Temin. 
Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife. Welcome to FedLife, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello and welcome to the show. Today we focus on two possibilities, both unlikely, but that would have a big effect on federal employees. One, of course, is the prospect of a debt default. We'll talk about that with financial planner Art Stein. But first, a bill from Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida would make federal executive branch employees all at will. You could be fired for any reason short of a prohibited personnel practice. I got one interpretation of what this bill would mean from the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association's John Hatton. John, good to have you back. Thank you for having me. And this bill has got a few co-sponsors, I think, already and also in the House. And what's your read on what it would actually do here? Well, I think you explained it pretty simply in terms of making everybody at will. That means people could be fired or hired for political purposes. This is uh, Schedule F on steroids. It would abolish the Merit System Protection Board, so you would have no administrative right to appeal an adverse action. There would still be potential remedies to go to court in very limited circumstances, similar to what may be available in the private sector. But this really eviscerates the merit-based civil service entirely. uh, And it doesn't really hide the fact that it's trying to do that. So everybody is Schedule F, in other words. (laughs) Yeah, basically. And and Schedule F even envisioned perhaps agencies setting forth some rules. This doesn't even envision that. So there's even a provision that if you have a bad faith whistleblower claim, because you can still have some whistleblower protections that you lose a portion of your pension. So it really discourages even those claims. And maybe if it's bad faith, sure, you should have some penalty. But if you're looking at a a claim that may be good faith and you're worried about being called bad faith and you're going to have a financial penalty for making it, then that's a problem too. So, Well, I guess, you know, one of the questions is who can decide whether someone comes or goes? Because if you have politicians deciding that at the level of GS 14, 13, 12, whatever, even senior executive service, then you've got spoiled system back as opposed to maybe just not a very good civil service system, but it's still (laughs) a civil service system. Right, exactly. And, you know, right now there's a limited amount of political appointees via Schedule C. It's about, I think, 4,000 or so that come in with each administration that are political. The logistics of hiring 2 million people very quickly based on political affiliation might be difficult. But I think over time, you'd see people getting fired and hired and entirely new roles of people coming in based on are they supporting the president that's coming into power or not? And I think that's the most extreme danger of this. And even if it doesn't reach all 2 million employees, if it reaches 100,000 or 200,000, you still have a lot of worry about how the, the service is operating and whether it's operating based on the rule of law or not, or based on the whoever is in charge. Right. If you look at some of the language at you know Rick Scott's Senate site, you know it says it's clear that the bureaucracy of the federal government is both a waste of taxpayer dollars and inefficient. I guess that's until FEMA shows up in your disaster site, and suddenly <laughs> you're glad they're there. But yeah. that's kind of a broad statement. I mean, yes, there are inefficiencies in the government, and there are sclerotic issues with the bureaucracy. But this seems to blame it on the people that are in the same system that didn't create that system. 
Right. Obviously, any large bureaucracy is going to have some inefficiencies and complexities and certainly reasonable and legitimate to take a look at how do you make the government operate better, more efficient, making sure that people are really hired and fired based on merit. But that's, you know, within the merit system is saying, like, we should have a government that if we're hiring somebody to be a nuclear scientist, that they should have the skills to be a nuclear scientist and not be hiring somebody who's maybe has, you know, limited skills in nuclear science uh, because they are supportive of whoever is the president in power. So that's a very extreme example when we come to science, but you can think of, you know, legal examples or just other professional jobs within the federal government that you want somebody who knows what they're doing and you want there to be some institutional knowledge carried over from one administration to the next. And you want some protections on nepotism or on political favoritism in the hiring and firing of people. So it's a demagogic bill, in my opinion. Uh, it's worse that it's done in the middle of public service recognition week and being called the Public Service Reform Act. So a um, lot of issues with this bill, in my opinion. Yeah, we're speaking with John Hatton, Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. And what do NARF members, what does the NARF kind of body politic think would be constructive ways to reform the civil service? Well, certain things that NARF as an organization has supported have been reforms to federal hiring practices, right? So right now, it takes a really long time to hire people into the federal government. Could you reform that system so we're not using these self-assessment questionnaires so somebody gets qualified into being in the role but is not really qualified for the role because they said they were, but they're really not. So that's the, you know, for example, the Chance to Compete Act. The administration has been moving towards using subject matter experts in hiring processes as well. You know, you could look at some more modest reforms to, you know, bring retirees back into the workforce by having dual compensation waivers. So your pay is an offset by your annuity when, you know, with certain safeguards. So people aren't, you know, planning to retire one day and go right to work the next day. Yeah, double two dipping. Sets of pay. <laughs> right. But, you know, when an agency really needs the extra help, you know, for example, the IRS may need extra help hiring a lot of people. And that's a specific skill set that's very unique to the IRS. And so how do you get the numbers of people that they need with those skills? You need to improve your hiring processes so it's more efficient. Uh, you need to be able to improve trainings. You need to be able to potentially hire back retirees. So there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of complexities in the way the civil service operates right now, where there's a lot of room for growth in that system and modernization of that system without you know throwing it out the door. Plus, there's also the idea of better training people that are designated as management, as career management, right. not just SES, but even managers below that, 15, 14, even some 13s have supervisory. And then if someone is a bad performer, then right. there are good procedures for getting rid of the people that need to go without that you know, bureaucratic process that you often hear used to describe trying to remove the people that aren't up to par. I think it's a little bit of a myth that you cannot fire federal employees. There may be procedures sure. you have to go through, but there's certainly, I've heard plenty of accounts of people firing federal employees. And so part of that, though, in cases where people aren't taking disciplinary action where they should, 
maybe it is a matter, a matter of training and a matter of knowing what the procedures are and knowing what you can do and having a performance management system in place that generally incentivizes managers to deal with poor performers rather than to accept them and going through. So therefore, you know, you have an incentive to deal with that rather than the disincentive of going through a more arduous process. That bill probably doesn't have a lot of chance of being enacted. It's a close Congress and it probably won't make anywhere in the House and the president would veto it in any case. And while we have you, let's talk about the debt limit, though. (laughs) That could be reached. It's kind of getting a little (laughs) bit hot under the collar around a lot of quarters with respect to that. And what would that mean, do you think, for even if it's a week of default or something for feds and retirees? Well, if the government doesn't have the authority to issue new debt to then pay financial obligations when bills come due, like federal paychecks or like federal annuities, that means the federal employee or the federal annuitant won't get that money. And so, you know, that the exact date that that will happen, you know, if it's default the first of the month and that's when checks are supposed to go out, well, that'll delay those checks until they're able to pay them. But it, it may not happen until the next month. So immediately it's, it's unclear. It's based on the timing that when the default X date is and the timing of payments. And then more broadly than how is it affecting directly federal employees and retirees, I think are the economic impacts, the, the impacts on interest rates. You know, there's certainly plenty of economists with more uh, expertise in economics uh, that will give you numbers on the hits of GDP and the, the interest costs for the government and things like that. But I think it's certainly a situation that we should want to avoid <laughs> uh, in terms of disruptions of payments to the government so, and having that full faith and credit upheld. Sure. Pretty much everyone would be in the same suffering boat, whether you're a retiree <laughs> from the federal government or just on Social Security. Right. Social Security benefits could be affected as well. Medicare payments to providers that could affect your services. So there's a whole host of consequences that occur here. And I think right now there's negotiations, quote unquote, happening between the president and Congress, uh, really McCarthy. But it looks like they're still pretty far apart and it's getting closer to a deadline without an understanding of how they get past it. And so even if both sides say, oh, they don't want default, can you pass a clean debt limit extension through Congress or not? Like, how do you get that on the floor of the House or through the Senate? And so it's getting more worrisome. And so we sent a letter, our, our national president sent a letter to Congress asking them to kind of avoid default here because it, it's, it is an extremely important issue. And, you know, we don't have a, a specific negotiated solution that we're pressing, but you shouldn't hold it hostage for your own priorities. And tell us about something totally unrelated. People can buy something now we hope they never need, and that is long-term care insurance program from John Hancock. Yeah, so the federal long-term care insurance program started in 2002 when the first policies were issued. And since then, you know, it is a very valuable insurance product. Long-term care costs are extremely high. A lot of federal retirees specifically may not be able to qualify eventually for Medicaid if they had some other policy, which is really the catastrophic coverage because you'll continue to have income. You're not going to be able to draw down your assets. So you need to figure out some way to plan for those costs in case you have them because they could be very high. I've heard costs as high as $15,000 a month for care coverage in a facility. So... Even if you want to plan and you'd rather not do that, you still need to plan for the worst. 
So a lot of federal retirees and federal employees planned responsibly by enrolling in this program to provide them insurance in the future. They thought they were signing up for a contract that was for their life, that the premiums were quoted as supposedly staying stable. But every time OPM has renewed a contract with John Hancock to insure the program, they have forced those premium increases onto enrollees. So they were as high as 25% in 2009, as high as 126%, I believe 83% on average in 2016. And now the contract just got renewed May 1st of this year. New premiums will be effective January 24. And the amounts and different options for people will be available in September of 23. OPM has not provided information on the average or range of increases, which tells me it could be sure. very high. Right. This thing has been getting more expensive and more limited over the years and almost no carriers deal in it anymore, correct? Correct. There's a lot of the carriers in the in the private sector, the non-group coverage market. So this is a specifically a group plan just for federal employees and retirees. You could go to the private sector and there's much more limited coverage for this type of insurance where it's just straight long-term care insurance because a lot of other programs have had a similar situation where premiums had to go up. They've had to go to their state insurance commissioners to get those premium increases approved. Here it's going to OPM. I think one of the differences in the federal program and some of these private market programs is that the insurer has basically taken on very little risk because they get a, the guaranteed percentage of profit from the program. And this was detailed in a report that OPM had commissioned in connection with this premium increase. And so the insurer here has not really been on the hook for any of the mistakes in their actuarial assumptions, and they're all being felt by the enrollees. And so that's the biggest difference between this program and the private sector programs, even if there have been similar premium increases. And the private sector has moved to maybe these hybrid long-term care life insurance models where you have like a long-term care insurance rider on a whole life insurance. So you could at least draw down from that first. And so there's been different products available than this current product is being done. Right. So think about it carefully if you decide to invest in it and, you know, look at your life and what you expect. Yeah. And well, I think right now enrollments in this program have been suspended. So they're not even issuing new policies. So it's just the people, there's about 270,000 people that are enrolled in this program that are just continue to face these premium increases every seven years. And so it's a difficult situation because you're taking that choice away from the enrollees about what to do with their money and how to plan because they were quoted, let's say, $200 a month, and now it's going up to $800 a month. So, you know, as, as a potential example. John Hatton is Vice President for Policy and Programs at the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, or NARF. Find this interview, along with more about the Rick Scott Bill, at federalnewsnetwork.com. We'll take a short break, and when we return, some financial advice, should the unthinkable occur. You're listening to FedLife on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. 